Hello and welcome to Exploring Strategies for Diabetes and Obesity Management, a conversation with Dr. Mike Natter. I'm Dr. Chuck Vega, and I'm a health sciences clinical professor of family medicine at the University of California at Irvine, where I also serve as assistant dean for culture and community education. Today, I'm really excited to be uh, talking to Dr. Mike Natter. He's an assistant clinical professor of medicine and clinical endocrinologist at the NYU Langone Health in New York City, and he has more than 115,000 followers on Instagram. Really impressive. Um, this podcast episode is part of a curriculum designed to uncover primary care pearls from influential clinician specialists that you've likely seen in your social media feed. This is the first time PrimeMed has created conversational CME podcast episodes with influencers in our space. So I would encourage you to check out the other CME courses within the curriculum at www.primed.com slash Vega. So let's get to you, Mike. Um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, what, what and where do you practice and what are some of the common conditions that you treat? Thanks, Chuck. Thank you so much. Uh, I'm Mike Natter. I'm born and raised in New York City in the Upper West Side. Um, I actually was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes when I was nine years old. Um, and I identify really as an artist, a humanist, and a doctor, um, pretty much in that order, honestly. I, I really found that art is very much uh, a big piece of who I am. Uh, but also being a patient has informed a lot of my life and, and has allowed me to come into medicine. Um, so I currently practice as a clinical endocrinologist in New York City. And I see a lot of different conditions. I do general endocrinology, but I do specialize on Fridays in type 1 diabetes. But general endocrine includes things like PCOS or osteoporosis, thyroid disease, pituitary disease, adrenal disease, parathyroid disease, and a number of other things as well. Right. And, and so you've had experience with a chronic illness, a very important and common chronic illness, um, you know, from the time uh, you were uh, a very young man. Um, and I always find that when you've had experience, you know, maybe a, a certain illness, a certain surgery, it is very, very informative the way you might take care of patients and the way you might communicate with patients. So can you tell us about how uh, having type 1 diabetes has informed your practice? And uh, if so, in what ways? Absolutely, Chuck. So, you know, prior to being diagnosed, there was no understanding of medicine at all in my family. There was no doctors, nurses, or any professionals of any kind of medicine in my family. So um, it really opened the door of my diagnosis into really the physiology of what was going on. I gained this kind of admiration almost for my pancreas to all of a sudden have to be nine years old. And this responsibility was thrust on my shoulders to regulate my blood glucose and take my insulin shots and understand carbohydrates. Uh, it was a lot. And I don't wish that on anyone, but it, it did give me this fascination with medicine. Um, that kind of took me through a, a number of twists and turns and eventually through into medical school. Um, but when I started to treat patients, I really recognized that having that true understanding of what it's like to live as a patient, um, it allowed me, I think, a much more empathetic and um, genuine connection with my patients. And I do feel that palpably in the room when I talk to my patients who they struggle with whatever we all struggle with in, in terms of dealing with chronic condition. Um, but then when I share with them, you know, I understand that from a personal level, I do think that that is, is pretty powerful and pretty helpful. Yeah, I think that you could think that having, say, type 1 diabetes, you know, you're an absolute expert because you've lived it. And therefore, you know, the benefit is that you have authority in the condition. And, and that's true. There's no doubt about that. 
Um, but I think what really is beneficial and something that's more palpable to me in, in clinical medicine is, is more the connection, more the emotional connection you can get with patients, as well as maybe some pearls and just being open to sharing about how to do uh, particular types of interventions, whether they're diagnostic or therapeutic for a given condition. Um, that are effective because you're, you're a little bit inside, right? Because you you know the condition and uh, therefore you know what's valuable and what's not. Um, so I, th I, I don't know. Do, do you agree with that? Is is that what you found as well, or, or am I way off? No, no, absolutely, Chuck. I think I think you nailed it. I think. Uh, well, I want to say two things to that. So absolutely, and to the point that I am fortunate that I will be able to test out any technology prior to prescribing it. So I've tried all the insulin pumps. Yeah. Not because I personally wanted to, like I wanted to switch, but because I wanted to have that personal insight, that personal touch, so that if a patient called me with a problem to troubleshoot, I really knew how to interact with that pump. Um, but I, I also think there's something to be said about living with a chronic condition means that you live with that 24 seven and you will see your provider for 15 or 20 minutes every three or four months. So I always felt growing up, there was almost this kind of resentment of who are you to tell me out of your 15 minutes of the day how to really take care of myself? And there was kind right. of this sense of like detachment. Um, and so I always do share with my patients up front that, you know, they are their own expert and I'm here only to be a coach to help them. Awesome. Um, and some people need need more handholding and some people need, need more uh, kind of uh, prescribed structure and some are doing just fine. And they just come in to check in with me. And I'm fine with that too, so long as they're being safe. I agree. I, I often say that uh, a lot of times I, I find it's it's easier to think of myself as a health coach as opposed to a physician. And it's it's not only anything better for patients because you know they're finding their own motivations. They're finding some of their own best practices that, that work for them. It also helps keep me sane at times as well. So, uh, so I hope that's a, that's a good pearl we can share out of uh, our session today. Sure. Um, PrimeMed focuses on education mostly for primary care. But from your perspective, can you tell me about some potential misconception that PCPs have about endocrinology or the management of disease states such as diabetes or obesity? Sure. Well, I first want to start off by saying how grateful I am to the PCP community. I think the job that you guys have is uh, a very tall task, and I don't envy it. <laughs> There's a lot to be done, and I, I'm very uh, heavily relied on, on my, my colleagues in the PCP world. Um, I will say that, understandably, what happens often is we go down these kind of what I would say diagnostic kind of um, rabbit hole, not rabbit holes, but uh, premature closure of our diagnostic thought yeah. process, I think is a better way to do it. We see so many patients, so much, such a large volume at such a fast clip that we need to use this heuristic, hierarchical, you know, pattern recognition. So if we know that 90 something percent of, of diabetes or hyperglycemia that we see in the adult population is going to be a type two patient, uh, especially if the phenotype is such of someone who's overweight or they have a metabolic syndrome, it, it's very uh, understandable that we're going to miss uh, a potential autoimmune type 1. Um, but I have seen a, a number of cases where I've had patients referred to me who have been previously misdiagnosed with type 2 uh, for exactly that reason, uh, and they actually fall under what was known as latter or latent autoimmune diabetes of the adult. And so I always uh, recommend to, to my primary care colleagues to consider getting a C-peptide with a glucose and uh, even considering getting some antibodies uh, to, to check to see if this, in fact, is type 1 because 
uh, they have no insulin. They're insulinopenic, and that could be quite dangerous quite quickly if we keep them off of insulin. So I understand that if you take folks diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, that about 10% or so will actually have uh, islet cell autoantibodies. Is that accurate, or am I, am I off on that one? That is something I have to look into. Uh, it, now, autoantibodies are tricky in general. Like when we talk about general right. like for instance, TPO and so on, uh, it is true that there is going to be a percentage of the population that will have uh, autoantibody positivity. So I don't necessarily recommend uh, blanketly, um, you know, right. generally screening if there's absolutely no, um, no indication. But uh, if someone does present to you with hyperglycemia, um, it's not a bad idea to consider, uh, you know, uh, trying the autoantibodies. But I think it's fair to first start with a C-peptide and, and glucose. When we see the C-peptide is low and the glucose is high, um, you know, that would or at least should at least make you think that they're insulinopenic and would require insulin, whether or not it's because of a type 1 or an insulinopenic type 2. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I don't think that all those folks have, uh, you know, type 1 diabetes just because they have an uh, ISL autoantibody. But, yeah, it is. It is. Um, it's kind of interesting to see. And, and I, th I think another key message is there, there is a, a give and a gray area between type 1 and type 2 diabetes that we, we haven't recognized traditionally as well as we should, but it definitely exists, correct? Uh, I would say so, yeah. And, you know, I think there's also something to be said about uh, the specifics of, I believe, uh, the GAD65 antibody is uh, more highly tethered to uh, the LADA diagnosis. So I do think that in some cases, it would not be the worst thing in the world to get that GAD65, even if it is positive and has nothing to do with the diagnosis and it's a red herring. Um, I think if there's suspicion, then, then that's probably worth doing. If you want to diagnose LADA, you got to get a GADA. Um, okay, <laughs> it, let's switch it. gears. Okay, getting <laughs> a little too wonky, and I want us to keep rhyming. So uh, if you could share uh, some strategies then uh, for PCPs regarding um, diagnosis and management of folks uh, with suspected diabetes and or obesity, what do you, th what do you think they would be? Uh, so, yeah, so there's two kind of two uh, points there. So for suspected diabetes, um, in my mind, I kind of have a hierarchical approach to it. I, I want to say, first and foremost, like what will be dangerous if we miss it? What could be deadly? Um, and the idea of someone not making enough or any insulin would be deadly. So I always like to get uh, in the workup the C-peptide with a concomitant glucose to make sure that they're making insulin or enough insulin. Uh, from there, I think it's worth getting the autoantibodies, as we had discussed. Uh, but I also think this is a diagnosis that is extremely complicated and setting aside proper time, whether that means a close follow-up or a quick referral to an endocrinologist or a, a, a CDE, a certified diabetes educator, plugging these people into uh, places of information because it's emotionally, physically, mentally, it, it's a very difficult diagnosis to kind of learn and then adjust to. So I think that's that's another key part of it is is understanding that that um, access to appropriate education and, and support um, in terms of weight management. So I do see a lot of weight management uh, folks in the endocrine world, and uh, I'm sure as as you and everyone else in the medical world is aware, uh, the advent of these GLP uh, receptor agonists has been kind of revolutionary um, in the, in the in the pharmacologic treatment of of weight loss and obesity. And you know I see it firsthand every day. Um, but what I find is that a lot of providers are very quick to prescribe these medications, but I think there's more nuance that um, I wish was thought ahead of time in terms of education, in terms of side effects, in terms of management, in terms of monitoring. I will say that a lot of my patients on these GLP agents do notice some level of GI disturbance, whether that be severe 
whether that be a mild constipation. And uh, all of that, I think, is something we have to be very mindful of because while it's rare, some very severe complications can come from that, whether that be obstructed bowel or gallbladder disease um, or gastroparesis and so on. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I find that with GLP-1s, I, I do use them all the time. I, I'm, I find you know, remarkable efficacy with these agents with, without you know, risk of hypoglycemia. So um, really has been beneficial for so many folks, but you do have to do it right. Uh, titrate, absolutely. Give good instructions on diet. And, um, and yeah, I, I, I found using that approach is often successful. And then there's some pro, you know, small percentage that just will never tolerate those drugs, and and that's okay. We luckily we have others. Yeah. Um, many many times those patients you know have obesity. You know that's that's a really good target when a patient has both type two diabetes and obesity. Really, you know, GLP one receptor agonist is probably going to be my first choice. But many of them also have um, uh, steatohepatitis, hepatitis, and usually that's due to a non alcoholic uh, steatohepatitis hepatitis or NASH. And now I know there's been a name change fairly recently. And this is something that's incredibly common uh, in my patient population and probably in yours as well. So where are we going in terms of potentially uh, more effectively uh, treating NASH or MASH? Absolutely. So yeah, we are seeing a lot of this metabolic syndrome now kind of getting into these hepatocytes and causing a lot of this uh, kind of fatty deposition, which we also, we also believe as part of the etiology of a lot of the kind of inflammatory, you know, um, lipotoxicity that, that causes type 2 diabetes and causes a lot of these metabolic problems. And I found pretty consistently that a lot of the issues we see in this metabolic syndrome with MASH and with hypercholesterolemia and diabetes and, and, and weight, uh, blood pressure, a lot of it has that common denominator of weight. And when we see the weight loss, we kind of see all of these metrics get better. Um, so I found that the GLP-1 agents also do quite a lot. And there is some, some data uh, su suggesting that outside of the weight loss benefit, there's some other mechanism that we are finding to be helpful in, in MASH and, and, and kind of halting and reversing a lot of this steatohepatitis. Um, but I also, I also think it's also worth recognizing other kind of diagnostic workup that goes into that other than just the, the, the LFT patterns. Um, you know, the uh, elastography is important. Mm -hmm. uh, the ultrasound is important. In some cases, getting them in plugged in with the hepatologist, they might need, you know, further workup. We might be seeing what we believe to be MASH or NASH, but maybe it is kind of autoimmune hepatitis or, you know, um, hemochromatosis or what, what have you. So there's a number of things that uh, you always want to keep your differential broad up front. Um, but I also find that these GLP agents have been pretty remarkable with helping reverse that as well. Yeah, so those are really good points. And again, I think it just speaks to, you know, keeping an open mind as you move through a diagnostic process, and especially if, as you have experience with patients over time. If they're really progressing quickly in terms of you're watching their transaminase levels and they start to show some evidence of cirrhosis and, and absolutely refer them for imaging, refer them for uh, more testing, such as autoimmune testing, um, iron testing for hemochromatosis, and get them into a liver specialist. Um, and yeah, hopefully a GLP-1 could be a consideration there too. Uh, yeah, I feel uh, bad that uh, you mentioned, I believe that you're an artist first and we're only asking a question about it now. So, but let's delve into it. Um, your, your drawings are amazing. I've seen them. Uh, I'm, it's very impressive. Um, I, I, you could give me a thousand years, I couldn't do it. Um, but I want to know, how did you get into cartooning? And, and you know, now that you have this experience and you're obviously still drawing quite a lot, how does it impact the way you practice medicine? 
Sure. Uh, Chuck, thank you for that. I, I really appreciate it. Um, I, I came into medicine through such a backwards way, and art was one of those things that was very natural to me. So I grew up drawing. Um, my parents were very supportive of my art hobby, and it kind of continued into, into undergrad where I really studied fine art. I was drawing kind of like these large charcoal figures, and uh, that's it was funny because I always felt like that was kind of my calling you know, to, to create fine art. Um, but I realized as I looked around the studio in undergrad that there were some very, very talented people around me and that I would be very, very poor if I was trying to compete with these people in that world. So um, I, I knew that I wasn't going to be successful uh, as a fine artist. And I did have this fascination with medicine, this, this real like draw toward understanding medicine. But I thought because I was an artist, I couldn't be both. I couldn't be an artist or a doctor. I wasn't, I didn't have the right, um, or I guess the left brain to become a doctor in my mind. Um, but as I went through undergrad and kind of gained an academic confidence in myself, uh, really as a young adult, I then decided I would try. So I went to post-bac program and I went to med school from there and I was very fortunate to get in. And I found that as I was learning medicine, I was doodling. So I would write these little notes on the side of my, my page and they were little drawings, little cartoons, little comics. And some of them were funny, which made the material a little more sticky. Um, and some of them were really kind of more anatomical and, and kind of fine art uh, rendered stuff. But all of them stuck in my brain. And so when I would take these tests, I didn't remember any of the text. I didn't remember any of the slides. I just remembered my drawings. And that was a clue to me that this could be harnessed in a way and utilized in a way that was going to be didactic for my understanding of medicine. And so I really kind of leaned into it. I bought a sketchbook, I tossed out my notebook, and I really just drew my notes out. And I found that cartooning and making illustrations was a little bit quicker, a little bit better, a little stickier, and a little funnier. And so that really became kind of my modality, initially, selfishly, just to teach myself. As I went through training and, and intern year residency and, and fellowship and so on, I found that I was using my art not only to teach and understand medicine, but also to cope with the training process. I would poke fun at the absurdity that would be expected of us, like 28-hour shifts and all the craziness, uh, but also the more emotional stuff, um, the death we would see, the difficult conversations we would have, COVID. Um, so that was really helpful for me, I think, emotionally um, to really put down those emotions in a way that I could process them, I think. Um, but now as an attending, I find that drawing is so helpful for my patients. I have a belief that every patient deserves to understand the pathophysiology of their condition. I don't care their education level, their age, their language barrier. None of that should make a difference. And it's actually a poor reflection on us as physicians if we can't teach our patients what's actually going on. Because when they go home and they understand that mechanism, they then have that agency and that autonomy to really understand and make the right and appropriate decisions, I think. And so we're giving them the tools to do that. So I'll often draw in the room with my patients in the clinic on a regular basis, understanding how the negative feedback of the thyroid works or the mechanism of, of hyperglycemia. Uh, and very commonly, the illustration will end up as scribbles. But the patient really appreciates that time and that process you took. Oftentimes, they ask for that piece of paper, even though it looks terrible. Right, right. So that's, that's been my experience. So you use uh, pen and paper as your chosen medium in clinic? I do. Yeah, I do. And I think the, the um, process of doing it on pen and paper also is part and parcel to the process of, of what the patient's taking away from it. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's nice to be able to hand them something. I, I agree at the end. And I would encourage everybody to try this because I, I'm sure your, uh, your pictures go way beyond scribbles. Um, and I've, I've seen the work. And, uh, but, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting sometimes when I'm drawing for a patient and I actually, I come, I kind of take a step back. It's like, wow, actually that's my best pancreas I've ever done. Uh, so it's kind of interesting <laughs> for you too, as a clinician to kind of, you may, maybe you'll discover that you have a talent that you didn't know you had, or at least maybe you forgot about it, um, after many, many long hours uh, in clinical medicine. Um, Mike, this brings us to the end of the episode, but, uh, thank you so much for, uh, for joining us. I, I really see um, the artist, the humanist, uh, the doctor in you, it, it's, it's very clear and it's really refreshing. Um, thanks to our audience as well for uh, listening in. Don't forget to visit www.primed.com slash Vega to listen to the other CME podcasts in this curriculum featuring influential clinician specialists like Dr. Natter. Thank you very much. Take care, everyone. Thanks, Chuck.